John is going to read for us from 1 Peter chapter 4. Therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same understanding, because the one who suffers in the flesh is finished with sin, in order to live the remaining time in the flesh no longer for human desires, but for God's will. For there has already been enough time spent in doing what the Gentiles choose to do, carrying on an unrestrained behavior, evil desires, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and lawless idolatry. They are surprised that you don't join them in the same flood of wild behavior, and they slander you. They will give an account to the one who stands ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel was also preached to those who are now dead, so that although they might be judged in the flesh according to human standards, they might live in the spirit according to God's standards. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and sober-minded for prayer. Above all, maintain constant love for one another, since love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another, Without complaining, just as each one has received a gift, use it to serve others as good stewards of the varied grace of God. If anyone speaks, let it be as one who speaks God's words. If anyone serves, let it be from the strength God provides, so that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ in everything. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Dear, dear friends, don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes among you to test you as if something unusual were happening to you. Instead, rejoice as you share in the sufferings of Christ so that you may also rejoice with great joy when his glory is revealed. If you are ridiculed for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or a meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in having that name. For the time has come for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who disobey the gospel of God? And if a righteous person is saved with difficulty, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then let those who suffer according to God's will entrust themselves to a faithful creator while doing what is good. The word of the Lord. I don't know if you remember another book, another series of books that came out maybe 10 years ago. Uh, there was this first book that came out and it was called The Worst Case Scenario Survival Handbook. Did anyone ever own that, that book? Well, it was this book that came out and there was all these drawings and steps. And if these terrible things ever happened to you, like if you were attacked by a bear or you got stuck in the Everglades or your plane crashed, it gave you the way to survive. And uh, it became really popular, so popular that uh, not just that book on these broad scenarios, but they wrote entire books on specific ways to survive in specific scenarios. 
So you see a graphic here, here's how to survive a dog attack. But then what they did is they came out with these books that were specifically on one situation. So someone bought me this book and it was How to Survive the Holidays. And it was an entire book full of these graphics on like how to handle present wrapping and, and what happens if you have family come into town that you didn't invite and all these like worst case scenarios. And it was, it was really funny. And so these series of books started and then it just kind of got more and more ridiculous to the point where this one's come out, The Zombie Survival Guide. So if you're ever in the midst of the zombie apocalypse, you can buy this book and you can know what to do. And the situation just kind of kept getting more and more specific and a little bit more and more ridiculous. You know, as we look at the book of 1 Peter, um, it definitely covers how to walk through suffering in general. Let's say that you get sick. Let's say that you just lose a job. You have hardship. But very specifically, it's pointed at the kind of suffering that comes upon you specifically if you're a Christian. If you're a Christian and people don't like the fact that you believe in Jesus, 1 Peter's a little bit like this. The ultimate survival guide to following Jesus in a culture that doesn't like Christians. It's very pointed. And it wants to equip you and prepare you to how to live, to to live with faith when people don't like faith. And now some of us go, well, that's not really where I'm at. I'm not really in that place where people are pushing on me and people are rejecting me and people are slandering me because I'm a Christian. Well, you need to understand it's preparation for that in case that does happen. And two, if you're here and and you're not a Christian and you're considering Christianity, 1 Peter lets you know how Christians are actually supposed to act when people come against them. Because we see really bad examples of Christians acting in society and being judgmental and self-righteous. And it's okay that Christians aren't liked. First Peter tells us that Christians aren't supposed to be liked by a lot of people. But there's specific reasons why they're not supposed to be liked. And First Peter tells us it's a little bit of this ultimate survival guide to following Jesus in a culture that doesn't like Christians. And as we get into chapter 4, we're really in the heart of the book. And we could even say the last verse in this chapter is kind of the theme of the book. And in 1 Peter, as he writes the ultimate survival guide to following Jesus in a culture that doesn't like Christians, he tells us three things in this chapter. In order to survive in a culture that doesn't like Christians, you need to remember three things. You need to embrace reality. You need to embrace reality as it really is. Secondly, you need to stay warm and stay together. And then third, you need to trust during the test. Trust during the test. So let's talk about, first of all, embracing reality. When someone gets in a survival situation, one of the most important things is how quickly they come to accept that they're actually in a survival situation. So when Captain Sully's plane was leaving New York, and all of a sudden he hit a bird and everything went haywire, one of the reasons he was able to survive and save so many lives is because he very quickly embraced that the plane was going down. He embraced the reality of the situation. And oftentimes in accidents and survival situations, the people that survive versus the people that don't has to do with embracing reality. So you don't want to be in the place where you go, why is this happening to me? Oh no, how do I get out of this? Why is this happening? 
You want to come to the place where you say, this is happening, and I have to learn how to react and live in this particular situation. That's the first thing Peter is telling us, is to embrace reality. He starts off in verse 1 by saying, since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourself with the same understanding. In other words, if Jesus suffered because of his message and because he was a Messiah, and you're connected with him, you will experience suffering as well. And you need to arm yourself. You need to embrace that reality and that understanding. Later, he'll say in verse 12, Dear friends, don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes among you to test you as if something, were, uh, something unusual were happening to you. Don't be surprised when you experience suffering for a Christian. It's not unusual. Embrace that as reality. My kids are playing sports, and we go every Wednesday night to play sports. And as I got one of my children prepared to play soccer, I took her out on a field to practice. And I first taught her how to dribble the ball, and then I taught her how to score a goal. But then after she learned that, I taught her how to not be surprised when she experiences contact on the field. And while she was dribbling the ball, I would run next to her, and I would just push her just a little bit. Not hard. She's a little girl. But I would just push her just a little bit. And, I, and I'd kick the ball away from her. And I'd tap her, her shin guards so that she would not be surprised when that actually happened in a real game. Then last week, we went and, uh, I mean, this is herd soccer. Do you know what I mean by herd soccer? Everyone just kind of moves, and it's a dust cloud. And, and she went out to play. And, and, and she's actually pretty good. I'm really proud of her, if I can say that. Uh, but there was one little boy on the opposing team who was not interested in playing soccer. In fact, while the, the, the herd kind of moved back and forth down the field, he would run in a circle around the herd like this, and he would pick somebody out, and he'd run by them, and he'd grab their jersey and just throw them on the ground. And then he'd start doing a circle again, and he'd pick someone out. And I'm not kidding you, this happened 20 times. He'd do it to his own teammates. <laughs> It was hysterical. Finally, the referee, after a while, just said, get on the sideline. You're not even playing the game. But at one point, this happened to my daughter. He circled around, and he locked onto her, and he ran up to her, and he grabbed her jersey and threw her down on the ground. And I'm, you know, I'm getting a little upset, but I'm, stay calm, stay calm. And she got up, and she gave him the stank eye. You know, she was upset. But I got her attention. I said, hey, don't be surprised. It's part of the game. Get back in there. Move on. It happened, embrace it as reality, but keep playing the game. And she like let go of the stink eye and moved on and kept playing. See, when someone comes to you because of your faith and knocks you down, you got to get back up. This is just part of the situation of being a Christian. You got to get back up and you got to keep going. And as you do that, it actually produces resolve in you. Peter writes, the one who suffers in the flesh is finished with sin. And what Peter's trying to communicate is as we walk through this life and we choose following Jesus, even though it means suffering, rather than sinning, it kills the desire to sin in our life. The one who suffers in the flesh is finished with sin. And it snowballs so that we say, you know what? I would rather choose Jesus, even if it means suffering, rather than not following Jesus and sinning. And as you choose that decision over and over and over, sin loses power in your life. Now, that doesn't mean that you never, ever sin again, 
But as you embrace following Jesus and you say, I'm going to embrace the reality that it means suffering, sin loses power. You're, you're done with it as your master. Jesus is my master. You put down sin so you can follow Jesus. In verse 2, Peter writes, in order to live the remaining time in the flesh, no longer for human desires, but for God's will. You see that your, your time of living for yourself is over. And so you put down your sin in order that you might follow Jesus and pursue God's will. There's another little boy on my daughter's team, and he's, he's actually on her team, and his name is Dallas. And besides my daughter, Dallas is my favorite player. And here's the reason why. Dallas comes to each game with snacks. He comes fully loaded with snacks. But here's the thing. Once the game starts, Dallas will not put the snacks down. Three weeks ago, Dallas was running around in the middle of a game holding a bag of Doritos, <laughs> kicking the ball while he was eating. And we're all on the sideline. We kind of know each other. And we're, Dallas, put the Doritos down. And he shakes his head. He won't do it. And then a week after that, he came with crackers. And I'm kidding, not kidding you. He played the entire game double-fisting crackers. So he's kicking the ball, and he's taking a bite as he goes. <laughs> Dallas, put the snacks down. <laughs> Snack time is over. Living for self is over. We're to put down our pursuit of sin in order that we might spend the rest of the time pursuing God's will. Peter writes in verse 3, there has already been enough time spent in doing what the Gentiles choose to do, carrying on an unrestrained behavior, evil desires, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and lawless idolatries. Twice Peter uses this term that has to do with impulses and desires. It's a, it's a self-gratified style of living. Your reference point is self. Whereas Peter's been saying throughout the book, no, you need to control self. By the power of the Holy Spirit, you need to learn to say yes to God and say no to those desires that are outside of God's will. Peter also goes after lawless idolatries, and that, that's worshiping anything besides Jesus. In our culture, that doesn't go over very well because there's a sense of, hey, listen, what's better is everybody should be able to worship what you want. Peter's telling us here, no, 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 only worship Jesus. And as William Barclay say, that wounds public sensibilities. And when you say, listen, I'm only going to worship Jesus, and Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, what happens? What do people say back to you? How can you be so arrogant? How can you be so exclusive and intolerant? They're surprised. They're surprised at you. That's what Peter says in verse 4. They are surprised that you don't join them in the same flood of wild living, and they slander you. See, they think that what you do is actually evil. When you say Jesus is the one true God, that sounds evil. When you say, I'm going to say no to myself so I can say yes to Jesus, to them that sounds evil. And so they'll say things against you. You'll say, I'm forgiven, and they'll say, no, you're self-righteous. You'll say, I'm loved by Jesus, and they'll say, no, you're just afraid of this God that you've created in your imagination. You'll say, Jesus freed me from sin. And, and you'll, they'll say, listen, you're living in bondage to this evil master in the sky. And you say, look, I've been freed from being selfish. I've been freed from being self-centered. And they will take that personally and slander you. 
They'll call you delusional. They'll say that your values are detrimental to society. But here's the thing. Their judgment of you in this life is not as important as God's judgment of you. It's not even a distant second. Peter writes in verse 5 that they will give an account to the one who stands ready to judge the living and the dead. They may judge you in this life, but there is a judgment coming in the next life. And that judgment is to be your reference point, not what they say about you now. In the afterlife, we are accountable to God. He does hold us accountable. And I find it really interesting that when I talk to people and you say, ask the question, what do you think happens in the next life? You'll hear a million different opinions from people about what they think happens. And I get that. But what troubles me is people don't realize that their opinion of what happens next doesn't actually mean that's going to happen. If I say, listen, I believe that I turn into an angel when I die, that doesn't mean that's actually going to happen. If I say I believe I'm reunited with my, uh, with my family members, that doesn't mean that's actually going to happen. If I say I think I'm going to be good enough and uh, I'm going to get to go to heaven, that doesn't mean that's actually going to happen. It's crazy that everyone has a different opinion about what happens in the afterlife, but no one stops to consider what happens if I'm wrong? What happens if I'm wrong? It seems awfully risky to be playing with the afterlife just based on our opinions and what we want to happen. I mean, if we all go to south of downtown Miami and we get on I-95 together in a, big, in a big bus and we start driving north and I look at you guys and I say, where do you think this ends? And one of you says, I believe it ends in Austin, Texas. And another one says, well, I want it to end in San Francisco so we can go get some seafood. And another person says, well, I believe this ends up at the moon. We're going to end up at the moon. None of that matters. What matters is where it, is where it actually goes. I-95 ends in Maine. Your opinion of where it ends doesn't matter. Where it actually goes is important. And I find it so interesting that so many people don't realize that their opinion on the afterlife doesn't mean that's actually going to happen. They have no power over the afterlife, just like you have no power over, over where I-95 takes you. The bad news is, is that we are accountable to God for our sin. There is judgment in the afterlife. You and I have lived this life living for self, violating God's commands. We're born willfully sinful against God, and yet we participate in sin every day. And we're held accountable to him because he's righteous and just. He's flawless in his character, and he's fair. In other words, if an innocent bystander were to look at the situation between God and humanity, they would say, God is right to judge. It's humanity that has rebelled against them because God is righteous and just. And part of his judgment is that now we are separated from him. That's why we're guessing about what happens in the afterlife because we're not in physical relationship with him like we were in the garden. And part of that judgment is that we experience death in this life. Death was not part of life as it was in the garden. And if we die unreconciled to God, we spend eternity apart from him. Now, I know some people say, listen, judgment, that's, that's intolerant. But here's the thing, everybody judges. Everybody judges. I could bring up three politicians and everyone in the room would get mad at one of them. 
and declare that they're evil. I could bring up certain situations and, and you would have a sense of judgment rise up in you. Everybody has this thing of judgment in them because we're made in the image of God who is a judge. And yet our sense of judgment is all gone haywire because we're no longer connected to him. So everybody judges and everyone judges according to their own standard. That's why when you bring up judgment, the first thing in you is you start to think about how you've been a good person. But how you've been a good person is always according to your own standards. So everyone believes they're a good person. But it's not according to, God, to our standards. It's according to God's standards that we're judged. They will give an account to the one who stands ready to judge the living and the dead. And that's why the gospel is so important. The gospel is so important. Peter writes in verse 6, For this reason the gospel was also preached to those who are now dead, so that although they might be judged in the flesh according to human standards, they might live in the spirit according to God's standards. Now some people believe that the language used in this is saying that uh, somehow people who have already died can hear the gospel, repent and believe the gospel, and be saved even after, after they're dead. And that's not what this is saying. What it's saying is that people were alive and they heard the gospel and they repented and believed in the gospel and now they're dead. And they spent their time in this life suffering persecution because they believed in the gospel, but yet they were set free because of their repent, repentance and belief in Jesus. God sent Jesus to be a substitute for us. Christ was fully God and fully man. He represented both parties both man who is accountable to God, and he represented God who holds man accountable. And on the cross, he took the judgment that we deserve. He was put there and punished in our place. He was placed in the tomb, and on the third day, he rose again so that our sins could be forgiven and we could live for God in the here and now and spend eternity with God in the age to come. And if you've never received Jesus Christ by faith, let me tell you, this is urgent. It is urgent that you look to Jesus Christ, that you acknowledge your sin, you turn away from your sin, and you grasp onto him by faith. That's what Peter is saying. Before death, people heard the gospel, and they repented and believed. And even though they suffered in this life, once they died, they were set free and restored to God. Listen to the sense of urgency that Peter says in verse 7, he says, the end of all things is near. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that we're supposed to be looking out the window and like going, when is Jesus going to come back? Is he going to be now? Is it going to be in 10 minutes? Is it going to be tomorrow? Although Jesus' return is imminent, that's not exactly what Peter's trying to get at. Because if he were trying to get at, he would have been waiting 2,000 years from the time he wrote this until now. More what he's trying to say is, we're in the last chapter of God's story before the new age. The earth was created, man fell into sin, Israel was uh, constituted as a nation for God's purposes, and they looked forward to the time when Messiah came. Earlier in chapter 1, Peter has written about the prophets investigated and longed to know when the time Messiah would come. And what Peter's saying is, Messiah has come, he has died. He has been resurrected. He has ascended. 
And there's nothing left to happen except his return. We're in the last chapter of the story. So don't put your decision off. The final chapter of God's story is happening now. We're in it. And that chapter is cold and lonely. It's a cold and lonely chapter for the people of God in God's story. In fact, in Matthew 24, Jesus talks about a time of tribulation and persecution and that people would be hated because of Jesus. And many will fall away and many will betray one another and there'll be false prophets who lead people astray and there'll be lawlessness and the love of many will grow cold. The love of many will grow cold. And this time that we're in of God's story is a time when it's often cold and lonely to be one of the people of God. I'm part of a cohort of church planters, and we would get together once a month where we would talk about what it's like to church plan and, you know, be colleagues together and pray for one another. And one time we showed up and uh, they had this scenario, a survival scenario for us to work through together. And the, we had to read this paragraph, and the paragraph was about how you're all on a plane together, and the plane just crashed in a snowy wilderness. And you have like 50 different supplies, like duct tape, and you have a cell phone that doesn't work, and just things like that. And, then, and, and, and we had to kind of work it out together what was the most important thing to do. And there was all these different options, like you could go look for food, you could go look for help, you could really try and get your cell phone working. And there's something in me that said, you know what? I think the most important thing is to stay warm and stay together. I mean, we're out here and it's about to be night and it's going to be cold outside. It doesn't matter if we go get food, if we don't have anywhere to cook it and anywhere to keep us warm tonight. And if we send people out to go do a search party on their own, what if they get lost? And what if they come and rescue us and they get left behind? The most important thing was to build a fire to stay warm and to stay together. And I ended up being right. I was really proud of myself because they, everyone else was like, let's do this. And I was like, no, we've got to stay warm and stay together. And in Peter's ultimate survival guide to following Jesus in a culture that doesn't like Christians, the first thing is embracing reality. But the second thing is to stay warm and stay together. First of all, stay warm by prayer. In verse 7, he says, the end of all things is near, therefore be alert and sober-minded for prayer. Prayer is the survival tool for following Jesus in a culture that doesn't like Christians. It keeps you warm. It keeps you warmed at the fires of God's love. That's why one of the reasons that we pray every Wednesday morning. We pray every Wednesday morning through the Psalms. And if, if I had to describe it, really what we're trying to do is stay warm at the fires of God's love for us. We pray every Wednesday morning through the Psalms at 615. I'd encourage you to join that. We're also talking about starting an evening prayer line at the same night. Wednesday evening prayer line around 9 or something like that. And while in the morning prayer line, we're kind of praying up. God, we want to know you. God, warm our hearts to the gospel. In the evening prayer line, we're talking about praying out. Who do we know that doesn't know Jesus? Where are there situations of injustice in our city that we want God to heal? And if that, if that excites you about praying out, I need help starting that evening prayer line. Because we want more warmth, don't we? We want more prayer. We want to stay sober-minded and alert. Uh, 
Stay warm by prayer, but then also stay together with love. In verse 8, Peter writes, Above all, maintain constant love for one another, since love covers a multitude of sins. I love that idea of maintain constant love. It doesn't just happen. It's like a fire. You've got to keep blowing oxygen into the fire, keep putting new wood in it so that it stays warm. Because love is not based on an affinity or a likeness, right? It's easy to love someone who's like you, but that's not what Peter's talking about. Peter's talking about loving God's blended family where people are coming from different backgrounds and perspectives and have different goals in life and different skin colors and speak different languages. And that takes the love of Jesus. And as we live out in community, we will sin against each other. We will. It just happens because we're human. But the love of Jesus covers over a multitude of sin. That doesn't mean we ignore sin, but it also mean, it doesn't mean that we just, uh, how would I say it? It doesn't mean that we uh, have to hold judgment against each other. As we understand that we're forgiven from, the, from our sins by Christ, it gives us the ability to cover over other people's sins and forgive them as we engage them about it. So have you been gossiped against? Love covers over a multitude of gossip. Has someone spoken harshly about you? Love covers over that. Has someone belittled you or treated you unfairly? Love covers over belittling and being treated unfairly. If you name a sin, love can cover over it. Above all, maintain constant love for one another since love covers a multitude of sins. And then Peter tells us how to live out this love in a sacrificial way. He says, be hospitable to one another without complaining. Just as each of you has received a gift, use it to serve others as good stewards of the very grace of God. If anyone speaks, let it be as one who speaks God's word. If anyone serves, let it be from the strength God provides so that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ in everything. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. These are pretty straightforward. Have people in your home who are not like you and do it without complaining. There's a gift inside you that God has given you by his Holy Spirit. Steward that well to serve other people in the church. And then it says speaking God's words. If anyone speaks, let it be the word of God. Now that doesn't mean that every word you say has to be a Bible verse. If someone asks you for a glass of water or some, something to eat, you don't need to say, man can only live by bread alone. It, it, it's not saying that, nor is it saying uh, like new prophecies or things like that. Really, it's, it's kind of speaking to those who are teaching others and saying, look, don't give your own opinions. Teach the word of God. Teach the word of God. And then serve each other with God's strength. Stay warm and stay together. And as we do, it glorifies God. Jesus is glorified. To him be the glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Embrace reality. Stay warm and stay together. And then lastly, trust during the test. Verse 12 tells us that there is a test happening. Humanity in this time is being sorted out and sifted between those who follow Jesus and those who don't. And that sounds, 
That sounds apocalyptic and kind of scary, but that's the reality of what's actually happening and what God is doing. And in verse 17, Peter says, for the time has come for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who disobey the gospel of God? And if a righteous person is saved with difficulty, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? There is a testing happening, and the only hope you have is to hold on to Jesus Christ through that testing for your salvation. And what Peter's saying is that it's actually hard to hold on to Jesus Christ because people don't like that you hold on to Jesus Christ. So when it says it's difficult for a a righteous man to be saved, he's not saying that God has a hard time saving people. Rather, he's saying it's hard for us to continue to hold on to salvation because there are pressures that come against us that say, walk away from Jesus. Let it go. Follow yourself. Do what you want to do. But the test, the testing purifies our faith and shows the genuineness of it. As we choose Jesus and suffering over self and sin, it changes us. And during that test, we're told to trust by rejoicing. In verse 13, Peter says, rejoice as you share in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may also rejoice with great joy when his glory is revealed. See, when you're opposed for your faith, your first thought is, God is punishing me. And that's absolutely the last thing that's happening. Rather, when someone comes against you for your faith, you're actually participating in the life of Jesus Christ. You're joined with him. William Harrell says, as believers suffer for righteousness, They are to understand that they are not being punished by God for their sins, but they are participating in the sufferings of Christ that freed them from their sins. And so it says rejoice. That's not rejoice that you're suffering. Who rejoices uh, when pain comes? Nobody. It's rather the meaning behind the suffering. You're rejoicing in the fact that the suffering means you're participating with Christ. You're united to him. And if you suffer with him now, you will be in glory with him later. And as you hold on to that perspective, it can give you joy in the midst of suffering. Trust by rejoicing, but also trust God's presence and power. In verse 14 and 16, Peter says, If you are ridiculed for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in having that name. When you are abandoned because of Jesus Christ, God is still with you. When you are shamed because of Jesus Christ, the shaming is not your identity. Being in Christ is really who you are. See, Peter's not just writing about surviving, a survival God, so so to speak. He's really talking about thriving and living as you have confidence that God's power and presence are with you. Never will I leave you nor forsake you. The hairs on your head are numbered. God's presence and power is with you, not just to survive in the midst of a hostile culture, but to actually thrive, to do good, to follow God even when people oppose you. And so you're called to trust during the test. And really the theme verse 
I think of 1 Peter could be this. So then let those who suffer according to God's will entrust themselves to a faithful creator while doing what is good. I'm really excited to get over to West Africa later this week. And when I was there, I think it was in the 2011, I met this uh, young man named... Name muted for safety reasons. He had come to the conference really to be encouraged and get further training as a missionary. And he was, I can't remember where he was from in West Africa, but as I got to know him, I learned that he was living in a village that was 99% Muslim. Okay, 99%. And these were uh, Muslims... Uh, who were not favorable to the fact that he was a Christian. In other words, they thought they should come after them, come after him because of his faith. Decided uh, that he was going to continue to live in this village, and not only that, but he was going to do good by translating the Bible into their language. Now I want you to think about this for a second. Translating the Bible is not easy, in and of itself, into a, into a language. But imagine doing so in an environment that was 99% opposed to the fact that you're translating the Bible. And imagine coming, uh, finishing up translating the Bible and trying to give it to someone and they smack it out of your hand. Don't give me that. It's an incredible example of what Peter is doing. Peter is writing about. So then, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust themselves to a faithful creator while doing what is good. You know, whether you're in the situation now where people are opposing you, or you're going to find yourself in that situation, the key is really understanding that God is faithful. He's faithful. He loves you. He cares about you. Never will he leave you nor forsake you. The hairs on your head are numbered. And as you embrace that, you'll be able to do good even walk through suffering and hard things for the name of Jesus. Trust and do good. It's not just about survival. It's about thriving in the midst of hard circumstances. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you. Uh, we ask that you would give us the bold faith that comes from trusting and resting in Christ. We thank you for our brother. I don't know where he is right now. I hope that I get to see him at this coming conference. But I pray that you would protect him even as he's an example to us. And oh Lord, would you work a deep trust in our own hearts, a deep sense that you are with us and that you will never leave us nor forsake us. And all God's people said,